you there today if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to that place. Welcome to Corinth Baptist Church version 5.0. And if you don't like this version, wait about three months and we'll bring out 6.0 and you can not like that one too. For those of you that just hate change and you're going, man, they've done it again. Yeah, we have and we're going to keep doing it because we love the Lord and we just like to mess with you. So that's what we're doing here. One of the things that we're, uh, we kind of accidentally introduced uh, last week, and we're going to uh, continue, continue doing it in the weeks ahead, just because it's, a, it's just a great picture of God's grace among us. Uh, last Sunday night, for those of you that were here, we had the awesome privilege of seeing three of our young people uh, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. It was just a blessing to be there. And also, y'all, y'all can cheer for that. That's fine. I heard a little bit of it. <laughs> And also, uh, a man named Tommy Embry. Tommy, will you raise your hand just real quick? Right back in the back, right behind. He's hiding back here. And he's going, man, I wish he hadn't made me raise my hand. But this is, this is Tommy. And many of you have known uh, since last fall, his wife, Beth, uh, she was the one that when we baptized out at the river last fall, she got baptized on the spot that day and has been with us faithfully ever since. And uh, last week, in honor of Tommy's baptism, Beth brought in a tray of cookies and was giving those to me, and I said, why don't you just, you know, scatter them around to everybody else, and so you saw the cookie lady last week, and she's back again this week, and uh, so while I'm introducing some things, she's going to come around and, and give you guys some cookies, and you're going, really? We're really going to do this? Yeah, we are, because we like cookies, uh, fudge, whatever it is, it's good, it's sweet, and it's yummy, and uh, we're enjoying it, but she... She is. She, we decided to uh, just do this because of nothing else you'll remember. I went to that really weird church, and they gave me cookies. And I really don't know what it was about, but know that it's about this. In all seriousness, this is about the grace and love of your creator, God, who loved you so much that he gave you something even better than cookies. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so you grab you a cookie. That'll keep you from talking to your neighbor and we'll, uh, <laughs> and we're going to get right into it today. We're starting a new series called Take Your Turn. And we're going to be walking through this series together over the next three months in the book of Ephesians. And you'll notice that the word turn there, I've made it into an acronym. And it stands for some things that we're going to take a stand on in the days to come. As you came in this morning, hopefully you all got a little card like this. If you got it, will you raise it up in the air, a little card that's been nicely cut out, and wave it. It makes a nice little sound when you wave them around like this. We're going to make use of that sound at some point. I don't know for what, but uh, you got your card here. There's three things I want you to have as we get into this series together. First of all, I want you to come and bring your Bibles. Now, I know that we put the Scripture on the screen, and you don't have to bring your Bibles but as your pastor, please bring your Bibles. I want you to be like the Bereans and see if this is what God's Word actually says. So bring your Bibles and use your Bibles. I also want you to have this card with you. One last thing, over on the table as you exit today, we don't have many left. The 8 o'clock service folks ate them up pretty quickly. But over on the table as you leave, there's a table full of books. It's a book called I Am a Church Member by Dr. Tom Rayner. It's a book I want to recommend that will help you as we think through this series in Ephesians, which is going to be about what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean for us to be 
the body of Christ, and that's a, a helpful book. And if you're not a reader, it's only 80 pages. It's more like a glorified pamphlet, so I'm not asking you to read some big uh, treatise here. It's just an 80-page little book. You can read it. I sat down and read it in about a, a couple hours, if, if even that. I'm a pretty slow reader. Uh, but I want to encourage you to have those three things. Have your Bible, grab a copy of that book if you, if you would do that, and then also uh, bring your card with you. We're going to be using this. On the back of that card on the white side, this is where we're going to be each week. You can come prepared, you can read ahead, you can study ahead, and you can see if what your pastor is teaching you is actually uh, lining up with God's Word. So that's what that is. On the flip side, though, the side I want us to look at this morning is our church covenant. Now, some of you in this room didn't even know we had a church covenant. Some of you are members of our church and didn't even know we had a church covenant. And to be perfectly honest, it was only about six months ago that I rediscovered that we actually have a church covenant. And there's some good stuff in here. And so this acronym term that we're going to use over the weeks to come comes straight out of our church covenant. I've tweaked it just a little bit. I've used some synonyms to turn that into an acronym there. But the purpose is for us to re-engage with what we have agreed to. If you're a member of our church, this is something you've agreed to, whether you knew it or not. (laughs) This is something uh, that you agreed to when you became a member. And it's so good. And so what I want us to do this morning is we're going to stand together in just a moment and we're going to actually read our church covenant together this morning uh, as an act of worship. Before we do that, though, I want to show you just the four uh, parts of this covenant, the four main statements in our church covenant read. First of all, I will support the testimony of my church. That's the T there in the word turn. Number two, I will safeguard the unity of my church. That unity is the U. Uh, in turn. And, uh, number three, I will share the responsibility of my church. That's our R word. And the fourth one, I will serve with necessity in my church. And so let's stand together. We're going to read the full covenant the, with the sub points. Each one of those four points has three sub points. And so we're going to read together out loud uh, our church covenant. Let's read together. Number one, I will Support the testimony of my church. Let's do that one more time. I will support the testimony of my church by attending faithfully, by living a godly life, by giving regularly. Number two, I will safeguard the unity of my church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, by following the leaders. Number three, I will share the responsibility of my church by praying for its growth, by inviting the unchurched to attend, by warmly welcoming those who visit. Number four, I will serve with necessity in my church by discovering my gifts and talents, by developing a servant's heart, by being equipped to serve by my leaders. And you can be seated. So whether you knew it or not, members, this is something that that you, we have all covenanted together. A covenant is a God-sized promise. It's not just between uh, us, but it's between us and God. Just like marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife and God. This is a covenant for all of us. We hold one another accountable to these things before God to honor Him, not out of some duty or obligation, but out of a heartfelt devotion to the God who loves us. And so that's Today we're going to look at Church 101. Church 101. These are the basics of what it means to be the church. And I want to emphasize be 
the church. Here's something I want to encourage you to do over the next few months. I want to encourage every one of you in this room to stop going to church. I really mean that. Stop going to church and start being the church. I hope you'll know what I mean by that statement before we finish today. And if you don't, you're going to get it by the end of this series in Ephesians. We think about this thing called the church. We think about the church and how our culture views the church. And and I think that there's probably one word that our, our culture would use to describe the church. And it's the word irrelevant. We're living in a culture now where the church has been sidelined, pushed to the side. That's something that just people from a former foregone generation do. They, those weird Christians, they go to that place on Sunday morning. And the church for our culture today, living in what we now has been termed as a, a post-Christian culture, the church is viewed as irrelevant, old-fashioned, out of touch, having nothing to say to this culture anymore. But there are also some mentalities that we have inside the church that I think are just as destructive to this good gift that God has given us called the church. First of all, the first mentality, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen for you here. We often think of, whether we'd say it or not, the church as country club. And here we are. In fact, that's where I'm planning on being this week. For those of you that want to pray for my family, we're going on vacation to Florida. That's actually where I'm going to be uh, by about Monday, about 3 o'clock. That's going to be my view, I'm hoping. But folks, for many of us here, this, whether we would voice it or not, this is our perspective on the church. The church is country club. And when, when you become a member of a country club, how does that work? Basically, this is how it works. You pay your dues and you get services in return. You get to lounge by the pool and drink your pina coladas or whatever your drink is. And you expect that that little guy who brings you those is going to keep bringing them to you as often as you want. And you get to swing some clubs on that golf course. And your kids get to swim in that pool because the country club exists for the purpose of meeting your needs. You've paid your dues, and so the country club exists for that purpose. It's a consumer mentality that is rampant in our culture. We look at the schools with a consumer mentality. We look at every area of our culture with a consumer mentality, and it comes into the church, and we have church as country club. Pay your dues, get your services, and if that church isn't, here it is, meeting your needs, then find one that will. And so we walk away from Sunday morning And if we didn't, here's my favorite phrase, if we didn't get fed, we're upset with the pastor because he should have been bringing us the pina coladas by the pool. If we didn't like the music that morning, we're upset with the worship team because they didn't bring the heat that particular day. Church's country club, it's rampant. And though many of us would not seek to voice that as our view of the church, 
we oftentimes find ourselves kicked by the, back by the pool waiting on somebody to come and serve us. That's not the only view, though. Some of us see church as country clubs. Some of us see church as charity case. This is our view of the church. The church is always wanting something from me, and I see myself as contributor only. The church is always wanting my money, wanting my time, wanting my resources, wanting my gifts and talents. They're wanting me to always do more to the point where we burn ourselves out in seeking to what we call serve the Lord. But really, a lot of times in our minds, we're just serving the church. And we put our money in the offering plate with the thought of, I'm giving to the church, when in reality, when you give, you're giving to the Lord. And guess what? He don't need your money. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He is no beggar waiting for you, desperately pleading for you to do anything. But he willingly invites you into his work. Church as country club, church as charity case, whether you see yourself as consumer of what the church produces or contributor to what the church is doing, either one of those views leads us astray from the biblical picture of this thing called the church. The Greek word that's most often translated the church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. The called out ones, that is the church that we have been called out of sin. We have been called out of the death that comes with it. We've been called out of this dark world and into his marvelous light. We are the called out people of God. What in the world does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But I want to give you a statement before we move on. Folks, we need to know that the church is not buildings and budgets and programs. The church is the blood-bought people of God. And that's why I say stop going to church and start being the church. The church is not a place that you go to on Sunday morning. It is the people of God redeemed by the blood of his son who what we do in here is important. I don't want to diminish that, but what we do out there is so much more important. All this culture knows about the church is some weird people called Christians get together in a building, they sing some songs, they hear some kind of a talk, and then they go out and their lives aren't really any different than when they went in. That's the way our culture sees the church. And God, help us to stop going to church and start being the church. So we're going to look this morning at seven indications given in Ephesians chapter 1, what was read to us just a few minutes ago, seven indications, seven clear pictures of what this thing called the church is. The church is A through G. First one. The church is adopted. Look there with me at verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read this again together. Just before verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us. Don't get too upset with that word just yet. We're going to come to that one. I'm not going to avoid it this morning, but we're going to come back to it. In love he predestined us for what? He predestined us for, let's say it together, adoption. 
We can do better than that. He predestined us for adoption. There we go. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose to adopt us. The people of God are adopted into the family of God. And unless you grasp, at least on a fundamental level, what it means to be a child of God, you won't get this thing called the church. For you, the church will be buildings and budgets and programs. It won't be the blood-bought people of God until you realize that you have been adopted. What does that mean? In many ways, it means the very same thing it means in many of our families. Many of you in this room have either been adopted or have adopted others into your family. There's been a change of name, a change of identity, a change of address has taken place. And that child which is adopted is no less a son or daughter than the one that was born in the natural way of things. And the Bible teaches us that we were born naturally sinners, separated from the family of God. We had no right to call ourselves children of God. In fact, the Bible says we were children of the devil. You may not like that, but that's what the Scriptures say. But God, in His grace, chose to adopt us into His family. That's definition one of the church. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this. There are many... uh, connections between the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans. So we're going to be going back and forth between these books a lot over the next few months. In Romans 8, Paul said it this way, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're going to come back to that idea of the Spirit before we finish today. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. There it is. Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. By the way, that word Abba could easily be translated daddy, papa, an intimate term of relational fellowship between a father and his child. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this is the church, adopted. The church is not only adopted, the church is also blood-bought. Nobody wants to hear about the blood anymore. In fact, there are churches today in which they no longer sing hymns about the blood. But folks, I want to tell you today, when we stop singing hymns about the blood, I'm out of here. Because the blood is the very source of our salvation. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. And you cannot be a part of the church of Jesus Christ if you've not been bought with his blood. The word in this passage is redeemed. You look there in verse 7 and you will see there, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, we're going to come back to that phrase, according to the riches of his grace. The Greek word here behind this word redemption is the Greek word latrua. I don't want you to remember that, but I want you to remember what it means. If you were to go into the marketplace in Paul's day, whether you were in Corinth, whether you were in Ephesus, whether you were in Thessalonica, whichever one of these cities, they all had a marketplace. It was like their version of Walmart, essentially. You go there, anything you needed was in the marketplace. But there was one part of every 
marketplace that would have deeply troubled us. And it's where the slaves were bought and sold. There were over six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Every city had a slave market. It was a common practice. No one gave it a second thought. But every once in a while, someone would go into that slave market and they would purchase one of those slaves simply in order to set them free. That's where the Greek word latruo came from. That someone would go into the slave market and of their own goodwill, or perhaps because that individual was a a family member, a friend, or there was a connection there somehow, or maybe there was no connection whatsoever, maybe somebody just wanted to do a good deed that particular day, they would go into the slave market, they would pay the purchase price, and then they would enact a legal document of Latruo, of redemption, which meant this person has been bought and set free. Church, that is you. Jesus Christ stepped into the slave market of this world and the purchase price for your redemption was no silver coin but his blood. A far greater cost was paid that you might be set free. Set free from what, you say? Set free from sin and the death that surely comes with it. Set free from your rebellion against a holy God. Set free from the wrath that was surely coming to all who were living in that rebellion. We were sinners destined for hell. And Christ set us free. What a beautiful picture. Romans chapter 3 Many of you know Romans 3.23, and we often stop at this verse in sharing the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We've all got a sin problem. But if you keep reading, even right after that verse, you'll see the good news is there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. That means declared righteous by His Grace, a legal declaration made on your behalf. When you trusted Christ, God looked at you and said, Not guilty, justified, righteous, all because of Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Not of works that you had done only by the blood of his son. Justified by his grace as a gift through, there's that word, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He bought you whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And just like the slaves in the markets of Paul's day, you did nothing to earn your rescue. Nothing. You weren't good enough, you weren't smart enough, and not enough people liked you. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Adopted, blood-bought, and chosen. Now here's where it starts to get sticky. I know some of you read and you see that word predestined and you go, ooh, I don't like that word. But I want you to see something about this word that is so good this morning. We look there 
There in verses 3 and 4, I'm going to read it to us again. In verse 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That sounds good, doesn't it? That's what we want. Listen to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Some people think this word predestined is a dirty word. You hear the term predestination, and most pastors never want to talk about that because it's viewed as a dirty word in the Scriptures. How can we be predestined and still be free, people will ask. And I would love to tell you that I'm going to answer that question this morning. I'm not. I'm going to leave you to ponder on it. It's a great thing to ponder on, but I want, I want to leave you with some truths that are so great about this. First of all, look at how he brackets that word predestined there in verse 5. It's right before, I think, I think verse 5 should actually start two words previous. You'll see where the sentence begins. Again, these uh, verse numberings are not divinely inspired. How did he predestine us? Two words, in love. In love he did this. In love he chose you. In love before the foundation of the world, before he spoke and said, let there be light, he chose you, child of God. This was no plan B. In fact, the scriptures teach that not only before the foundation of the world were we chosen in Christ, but the scriptures say that before the foundation of the world, Christ lay slain. The cross was not plan B in the will of God. It wasn't as if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they went, God went, oh no, what am I going to do? No. In his sovereign and perfect will, he knew exactly what it would take to redeem a people for himself. And he chose it all. And so then there's this question, well, if he chose me, then, then, then where's my choice in the matter? Does that make us all robots? Nope. So which one is it then? Did... Did God choose me? Yep. Well, did I choose God? Yep. So which is it? And we get all wrapped up in this whole question, and we get so discombobulated about this, these words like predestination and election and how could God have chosen us and still be free, and we seem like we can't make heads or tails of it, and therein lies the answer that I want to give you this morning. I know it's not the full answer because I don't understand it, but I believe it because it's what the Bible teaches, that this whole issue is two sides of the same coin. We can't fully understand it because it is the mystery of God's salvation plan at work. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, on that day when God opened your heart and you first heard the gospel in all of its fullness, the glory of the light of the gospel was shown into your life and then you chose him. 
and both truths teach us about a God who loves us so much. You were not plan B. Neither was Jesus. I know there's a lot more we could say about that, and some of you are going to want to go deep with me on that particular issue later. But for now, I want to read from Romans 8. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be, there's that word again, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his purpose. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so for those who would want to go to that word predestined and kind of mark that out in your Bibles, let me tell you this, before you do it, mentally or otherwise, before you mark that word out, you need to understand if we were not predestined, we would not be justified, we would not be called, and we would not be glorified. If it's in the word of God, let's pray, Lord, help me to understand. And if I can't understand, help me to believe. So, moving on. We were chosen. We were also deeded. He speaks of an inheritance here in verses 11 and 12 that I don't want you to miss. In him, he says, again, look at this again. Eleven times in the scriptures, in these scriptures, he uses phrases like in him, in Christ, in the beloved. Every one of these things is found in Christ alone. You won't find them anywhere else. In him, verse 11 says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's the word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. An inheritance, a deed written and handed to the children of God, promising them what? The riches of his glory. And you read other scriptures that talk about our inheritance in Christ, and you begin to see this clear picture that God has deeded to us. He has given to us an inheritance that is not out of his riches, but according to his riches. The illustration was given of, of John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men, one of the richest Americans that's ever lived. And, and, and John D. Rockefeller was, was known for uh, regularly he would go up uh, to a beggar on the street and he would take whatever money was in his uh, pocket at the time and would make a big show of taking that money and putting it in the coffer of that uh, particular individual. And he would make a big show of, of showing how he was giving out of his riches to someone else. It's not the picture here, though, folks. When Christ gives to us according to his riches. It's not what John D. Rockefeller did. He gave out of his riches. And the difference is this. If John D. Rockefeller had given according to his riches, he would have had to have gone up to that beggar and given him the keys to his Duesenberg. Gone up to that beggar and given him the title to one of his many mansions. Gone up to that beggar and not only invited him to come and take a ride on his yacht, but when the ride was completed, handing him the deed and saying, now it's yours. That's what it means to give according 
to your riches rather than out of your riches? Aren't you thankful that God gave to you according to his riches and not just out of them? Romans chapter 10, another familiar passage. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what this says to us is this, folks. There are no classes of Christians. We do this in the church today. We act like that there are some who walk around with giant C's on their chest, the super Christians. And they fly through the churches and they do all these great things for God. And here's the rest of us lowly people and we kind of cower in the background. And, well, we just want to make sure, you know, hopefully God still loves me because I'm such a wreck. And I just, I cower under the shadows and I forget. I forget that the riches of his glory are mine. Because I didn't have to earn a big C on my chest. He took the cross in my place. His body was buried in the tomb that should have been mine. And he rose three days later so that I could have not just regular life, but abundant life. The riches of his glory are available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. Adopted, blood-bought, chosen, deeded, and E on your outline is enlightened. And there, verses 9 and 10, we'll read it again. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul talks so much about this in the book of Colossians. I wish we had time to linger long here. We don't, but that's okay. What I want you to know is this. You didn't come to the gospel because you were really smart. In fact, every one of us stayed away from the gospel in our flesh because we were really dumb. When I say enlightened, I don't want you to get this picture in your mind of like, you're so much better than everybody else because you've been enlightened. I want you to know that you were walking in darkness when you were apart from Christ. And when he shed the light of the gospel on your life, when your mind was open for the first time to understand what Jesus had done for you, when his light, the light of the glorious gospel came to bear on your life, you were enlightened by God. You were passive. He was the actor. He says he's making known to us the mystery of his Will, this word mystery occurs multiple times in this book. It's one of the key words of Ephesians. And it means something that was once veiled, something that was once unknown that has now been made known. In the Old Testament days, they were looking forward to a Messiah. They were looking forward to a salvation that was yet to come, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it to the point that when Jesus' disciples were walking with him, seeing all the things that he did, they still didn't get it to the point when Peter says, don't go to the cross. And the Lord has to respond, get behind me, Satan. 
you don't have in mind the things of God. They didn't understand the things of God. They were thick-headed, and so were we, believers. Until he removed the blinders from your eyes and opened your heart to receive this gospel. Romans 10. Now he, now to him who was able, sorry, this is Romans 16, very end of the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. There it is again. The mystery that was kept secret for long ages. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. His words given to the church. Two more. We're adopted, blood-bought, chosen, deeded, enlightened, and forgiven. Now, in the same way that many of us would shy away from the C word on the screen right now, we, we don't care for that idea because we, we love our freedom, and, and we should. But remember, two sides of the same coin. In the same way that we would shy away from predestination, we love forgiveness. But I want to caution us this morning. Sometimes we treat God's forgiveness like my 19-month-old son treats suckers. He loves suckers. We keep in the console of our vehicle a bag of suckers at all times. He calls them sorries. For the longest time, we thought he was apologizing. He'd be in the back. He'd be going, sorry, sorry. And we thought, what did you do? I don't, I mean, you never apologize. He never thinks he does anything wrong at that age. But I remember we finally figured out sorry means sucker. So if you ever see him running around, sorry, sorry, he's not admitting he did anything wrong. He doesn't believe he does anything wrong. But he is asking for a sucker. And so we keep in the console a bag full of suckers. And every time we go to the bank or go to the pharmacy, we get more suckers. Because, I mean, that kid can, from here to E-Town, he can eat eight or nine suckers. I'm not kidding you. He just loves them. We're going to rot his teeth out. But it keeps him from whining. It keeps me from throwing him out of the vehicle. So it's great. (laughs) So we think about J.D. and suckers. And I just want to tell you that I'm afraid. And I know this tendency is in me. That's why I'm speaking about it. We tend to treat God's forgiveness like that bag of suckers. We know there's a never-ending supply, or there better be, because we're going to fuss about it if there's not. And it's just one after another. We use God's forgiveness sometimes as a reason to sin. Well, I know he'll forgive me. I know there's more suckers up there. And I know God doesn't want to hear my whining. And so, I can engage in this a little bit. It's no big deal. Don't do it, folks. Don't allow God's forgiveness to become like that bag of suckers. He does have a never-ending supply, but you are not called upon to test that. We're called to flee from that very mentality. Romans 4. Blessed are those, this is a great passage, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is that you this morning?
If you are walking in the guilt of your sin today, would you look to the God who wants to bless you, who wants to forgive your sins, to cover them in the blood of His Son, who does not desire to count your sin against you, but rather to cast it as far as the east is from the west, to cast it into the depths of the sea that it will be heard from no more. That you can truly experience His forgiveness for all that it's worth. We come to the last letter. Adopted, blood-bought, chosen, deeded, enlightened, forgiven, and guaranteed. Let's read it, verse 13 and 14. In Him, again, in Christ, it's all in Christ, in Him, you also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, what happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, there's the word, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of worship going on in this passage. As if Paul throws out one of these great thoughts and then goes, praise God, I've been adopted. Praise God, I've been blood-bought. Praise God, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. Praise God, he deeded me an inheritance. He has enlightened me to the gospel. I'm forgiven and it's all guaranteed. And you go, well, how do I know it's guaranteed? Because he sealed it with his Holy Spirit. You see, a seal was a huge thing in Paul's day. Every legal document that was of any importance whatsoever would receive the signet, the seal of the one who was in charge over that document. They would take their signet ring and they would dip it into the wax and they would put that wax upon that document saying this is the guarantee of the authenticity of this document, of its authority and of its importance. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. How do you know these things are yours? Because you have his Holy Spirit. Apart from his Holy Spirit, there is no guarantee But with the Holy Spirit, it's all the guarantee that you need that all His promises are true. They are coming to you. Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through The Holy Spirit, there it is, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we think about this guarantee, 